Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I wanna welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, we are especially thankful that you've joined us this morning as we continue in our spring sermon series looking at the book of James, which is a letter that was written to early believers with instruction on how to live both faithful and fruitful lives and how to walk day by day according to the, the commands of the Lord, according to the will, that God's will that he has revealed to us through scripture, and our hope is that this is an encouragement, a source of strength and direction, because our lives can be a bit chaotic, right? And that's why James spends a lot of time in all these different aspects of our lives, whether it's temptation, or whether it's trial, whether it's controlling our tongue, or showing favoritism. James is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to us, to give us this clear instruction and direction and wisdom that we can apply in every season and every situation. And so this morning, we're going to be picking up in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn to James 4. If you want to go there on your phone, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And we're going to see that James is making a turn, uh, whereas last week he was speaking, in, at the end of chapter 3, he was speaking about uh, seeking wisdom from the Lord and, and seeking to live a life uh, that is in line with the Lord's leading, in line with his spirit, and especially in the way that we speak to one another. Uh, this morning, what we're going to see in chapter 4 is essentially this this general idea, this kind of main point that James is going to make, that we, as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, should be unified. That we should, as the body of Christ, as the local and global church, should be unified. That we should be pursuing unity, but that unity only comes if we are able to practice humility as individuals. And this is always true. Anytime you see a large group of people, or even a small group of people, unified, Generally, that unity is dependent upon the individual humility of the people in that community. And and we see this in a lot of different ways. My wife and I saw this play out here in College Station just over 10 years ago in 2012. There was this grand, amazing event that just took, captured the heart and minds of the people of College Station. And it was the destruction of a massive building known as the University Plaza Hotel. And so I know a lot of you, and at least at the 11, a lot of you weren't here for that. And so I'm going to paint for you a word picture, all right? Join me as we weave this tapestry together, where essentially what we had was this giant hotel apartment kind of thing structure that was right on the corner of University Drive and Texas Avenue, where now there's like that one high-rise thing and it's got like a world of beer I don't know, and other stuff. I don't know, but that, that thing, Okay. So right on that corner, there was a place called the University Plaza Hotel, and it was built in, you know, 1820, and people were just ready for it to go. The city planners and developers, they were like, this thing's got to make way for the future. The future is now. And so it was the talk of the town for weeks leading up to the moment when they were going to implode this building or set off charges and the whole thing was going to crumble right before our very eyes. And it was such a big thing that they literally, they put out instruction to the whole community through, you know, local news and newspaper and all that stuff of where you could go to watch it take place early in the morning of a Thursday, of a Thursday back in 2012. And so my wife and I, we heard about it. We were like, we got to go. Like, this is history in the making. Like, this is going to be probably the pinnacle of our lives. Um, and we've had three kids since then, but I, I don't know. That implosion was pretty cool. Uh, we, but what we saw on that Thursday morning was my wife and I, we woke up at 5.30 in the morning because they were going to detonate at 6. So we got up at 5.30. We started to drive. We did a short drive to, over to the designated viewing area 
for the implosion. And as we were driving there, I can only describe it, like when we were driving, we saw essentially a post-apocalyptic college station. Because when we were going, we started to see cars just abandoned. Technically, I guess parked, uh, but abandoned all along. The, they were on Texas Avenue. They were on all the like side streets, just cars that were just left. And there were people that were walking right away from those cars. And they're carrying you know, their spouse and their kids on their back. They got a cow behind them. And they're just, they're just slowly making their way to one of the designated areas. It was like in the fields and the parking lots all around the University Plaza Hotel because they wanted to see this implosion. My wife and I, we went to the the polo fields at the time, and we were in this like special area where we had saw there was the guy with the big plunger to set off the detonation, and there were all these people. We were surrounded by literally thousands of people that were all there like 5:45 a.m. on a Thursday to watch this thing come down. And as we were as I was looking around the crowd, I realized it was like, man, everyone is here. Like they were, uh, you know, adults and kids. There were like moms and dads, men and women, like just all types of people had shown up to see this implosion. One of my favorite uh, viewers, spectators, was a three-year-old who I was like, did they wake him up for this? And then I had a three-year-old, and I was like, no, they were already awake. Um, but they, there was this three-year-old that was still in his superhero pajamas, and he was just stomping around in his rain boots. And every once in a while, as he'd stomp around the grass, he would turn, he would look at the hotel, and he'd point at it, and he'd say, bring it down! And apparently he had a lot of sway because they did. They did that. They did that shortly after he screamed it. And so we got to see this whole thing implode. They pushed the plunger. Those charges went off. The whole thing just, everyone was like, what? You know, like, it was amazing. And as I was happening, I couldn't help but think about a conversation I'd had the day before. I was taking Greek through seminary at the time, and my Greek professor had come into town. We were sitting down. He wasn't an Aggie. He wasn't from, you know, College Station. And so we were sitting there, and we happened to be next to a local paper, like the Eagle, and the front page, giant print on the Eagle the day before the implosion was prepare for the plaza-ocalypse. And it was instructions for what to do to go watch this building like see it all go down, right? Figuratively and literally. And so when I showed that to my professor, he had a lot of questions. He was like, what? Like, what is this place? What's going on? And it really came down to, he looked at me, he's like, does College Station just like love destruction? Like, are you guys, are you guys okay? You know, like he was kind of concerned for our city. And I realized as I was talking to him about it, I was like, I think it's, it's more than just the destruction of it, right? It's the, really more so than that. What it is is it's the fact that we are watching this incredibly mighty force perform a mighty work. Like that's what it is. We're, we're in awe. We're humbled by the fact that there are these explosions and this engineering that went in to take this huge structure down. It seems like an impossible task for any individual, and yet it's happening, and in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, this is pretty much what he's, the argument that he's making, is that we as the followers of Jesus Christ should be in awe, that we should be humbled by the mighty work and power of our God. And as we are in awe of him, as we're humbled by his majesty, that humility creates a unity in the body of Christ. That is really our goal as mature believers, because remember, over and over again, what we see in James is that the goal of God for our lives is not our happiness. It's not, it's not for us to feel good. Or it, The goal of God in our lives is maturity. He wants us to grow and to flourish. He wants us to be transformed in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that God brings that about 
in community is by unifying us with one another, that we would reflect the unity and the, the, the singular vision of our God even in a diverse crowd of people. So James is going to make this argument in three main stages. He's going to start by commanding believers to reject envy, which is always the enemy of unity. He's gonna tell us we need to get that out of our ranks. Second, he's gonna tell us we need to receive the grace of God. We should be humbled by the lavish provision of God's grace and mercy that none of us deserve and yet that God freely bestows. And third, he's gonna say we need to reject pride that leads us towards judgment. Again, another common enemy of unity. So he says our goal is unity, and we get there by rejecting envy, by reserving our judgment, and by receiving the grace of God. So he starts like this in chapter four, verse one, if you'll read with me. He says, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside you? So James is asking basically a rhetorical question. He's saying, why do you fight Amongst, each, amongst yourselves. He says, why? Because you have a battle within. And what's interesting is that the Greek terms that he's using here for conflicts and quarrels there in verse one is literally he's saying it's wars and battles. In other words, it's fights on a large scale or small scale. So, so these could be conflicts that you see um, that involve a lot of people or it could be just the conflict that you have with your roommate, like with one other person. James is saying all of those conflicts, the root of both, the root of, the root of all of these conflicts is the fact that you are actually at war within yourself, that you have these competing desires and passions that are waging war. And he continues, he kind of explains it further in verse two. He says that you desire and you do not have, you murder and envy and you cannot obtain, you quarrel and you fight. So James is not saying that the, these early believers were actually murdering each other. But what he's arguing for is he's using this strong language that's really in line with Jesus' commands. He's saying, Jesus told his followers that maybe you feel good because you haven't murdered anyone. He says, but if you hate someone in your heart, it's as if you've murdered them. Right, James is picking up that exact same terminology. He's using that exact phrasing. He's saying that you, in your heart, are hating and you are envious of these things that you cannot have, these things that you cannot obtain, and therefore, in your heart, you are murdering, you're destroying one another. And it's leading not just to this internal conflict, but this external one. And again, he's coming back. So you're quarreling and you're fighting with one another. He says, you do not have, the end of verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. So you can spend it on your passions. And so right, right here at the start, James is going to give kind of his first almost application point, something he's gonna come back to later in the, in the, in the book. He's, we're gonna see a lot of it in chapter five, but he's gonna say, look, what you need to remember is that these fights and these quarrels, when it comes from this inability to have what you think you want or what you want or feel like you need, he says, many of these times, this provision that you lack says it's because you're not asking the Lord. You're not going to him as your source of provision. James is saying you should be in prayer, right? You need to spend more time in prayer with, the God, with God asking him to receive what you need. Prayer is always our first step towards provision from God. And here also we see it's not just the provision of God that we find through prayer, but it's also peace with other people. James is saying that we need to be going before the Lord and asking him for what we need, that, that that's, he's our source of provision. It's not that we need to take what someone else has or we need to scrounge it up in the world around us. He says you go to the Lord 
first. I remember getting asked a really convicting question when I was in college that was essentially this. The, The question that was posed to me was, what would change today if God said yes to every prayer you prayed yesterday? What would change today if God said yes to every request you brought to him yesterday? What would actually change? And for me, that was really convicting because I realized, wow, I'm, I'm not praying boldly for, for these people or for these situations, but, but I should. And it's not that God is just waiting and he always says yes and he always gives us what we think we need because God knows what's best. He says that he's the loving father and he gives good gifts, but, but ultimately he's, he's the authority. And so there's times that we think we need something when we really don't. So it's not that God always says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But James's point is that we wouldn't even know because we're not bringing it to him. He says, or it could be that sometimes you're bringing these requests to the Lord, but you're asking wrongly. Remember, he talked about this in chapter one, that we could come to the Lord asking for something, but if we're coming and asking him in a divided manner, that's foolish. We're not asking in the right way. He's making the same point again here in chapter four. You're asking wrongly because it's not that you wanna see the words that we just sang, God's will be done on earth, he says, you're not asking that you would see God's will be done, but you're asking that your will would be done and you see God as a means towards your ends. He says, and that's, that's also wrong, right? We need to be coming to the Lord in humility, asking for him to work, asking for him to provide. James says, that's, that's the way that we you know, cut envy off at the past. That's how we get out ahead of these waging passions and desires that are in conflict within us that then create conflict around us. And so James really hammers the point home here in verse four when he says, addresses the audience as adulterers. He says, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Again, James is using very strong language. He's borrowing it from Jesus Christ himself, who in the same sermon where Jesus told his followers that if they hate another person in their hearts the same as murder, he says if you are lust, if you are lusting after someone in your heart, after someone or something that you don't have, he says it's the same as adultery. It's the same thing as adultery. So James is using that terminology. He's saying you, in the division of your heart, are essentially practicing adultery because you are seeking to kind of hedge your bet with God by establishing yourself or putting your hopes, your dreams, your goals in the world around you rather than with God alone. You're not living out that psalm that we read, Psalm 23, that that the Lord is my shepherd that I shall not want, that I lack nothing. James is saying that you are divided in your heart, you're divided in your soul, and it's the same as adultery. And it's stark, and that's really challenging. It should be really convicting for us to think about how this is something that we all fall into, right? And that's, it's, it's troubling. It'd be really troubling if I told you that my wife and I, right, so Susan, my wife, and I have been married for just over 13 years. It'd be really troubling, I hope it would be troubling to you if I told you that my goal in my marriage relationship is to be mostly faithful to my wife. Like, you're like, ooh, can you say that? Like, should that go online? Like, that's, yeah, that's, that's a startling statement to make. And obviously, that's not my goal. When I made vows to my wife on our wedding day, I didn't say, hey, I will just be a little unfaithful to you. Like, that was not the vow that I made. 
Instead, I recognize my role and my responsibility in this relationship is to be fully, undividedly attentive and loving and faithful to you alone. James is saying that is what God has called us to in our relationship with himself. And yet, we have this inner conflict, this war, this, this, this battle that's waging. He says, and we want to try to maybe find a little bit of our hope or a little bit of our sustenance or our satisfaction in the world. And he says, and if you're doing that, if you're deciding to make the world your friend, he says, what you're doing is you're abandoning the Lord. You're making God your enemy. Strong language to make a powerful point that we should be undivided in our worship and our reliance upon the Lord. And that's why James then kind of goes on. He's reinforcing it again by summarizing the teachings of Scripture in verse five. He says, do you think the Scripture means nothing when it says the spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning? Okay, so this is an interesting little passage. It's, it's a little difficult to interpret. And there's discussion in biblical scholarship that kind of goes two different ways on what James is getting at with this verse in particular. Because even though we have it in quotation marks, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, Greek doesn't have punctuation, it doesn't have quotation marks. But James seems to be quoting from the Old Testament, from Scripture, and yet there's no footnote in your Bible. There's no cross-reference in your Bible for that, that statement right there, because it's not in our Old Testament. Like, there's no, there's no direct verse that James is quoting. He's about to quote from Proverbs 3 in the next verse, but this right here is, seems to be maybe an, an encapsulation or a summary of various Old Testament teachings about how we have this divided heart. Now, that said, because he's not directly quoting, it also gives the kind of reason for discussion around, okay, well, this could be that James is referring, when he uses the term pneuma, when he's talking about the spirit in this verse, it could be that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. And so one interpretation would say that God has given us this Holy Spirit that longs for us. In other words, it's God's longing for us to be in relationship with himself. Or I think the, the better interpretation is that James is saying that there's this spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit, our soul, our immaterial self, that should be longing for the Lord and yet doesn't. And yet it longs for the world. In other words, we need to be on guard because we have a divided heart. That, that even though we are created by the purpose of God for the pursuit of God, our GPS is broken and it will lead us in the wrong direction. I think that's what James is actually getting at here in part because of how he proceeds in verse six. But this is a really important thing for us to remember that either way, whether it's God's right longing for us that James is referring to, or if it's our wrong desire for the world, the point is simply that God has made us for himself, and yet we long for other things. That's the point that James is making, that we're divided. We're divided in our heart and our soul. We fail to be fully committed to the Lord. We all practice adultery. That's what James is saying. That's the point that he's making, that our heart is untrustworthy. Which is really interesting because, you know, my wife and I have three little kids and we watch shows or movies and a lot of times the big idea in those like tales that they're told, the books that we read are about listen to your heart, right? Follow your heart. Like that's just something that is repeated to our kids. And when I hear that, I always kind of, sometimes we talk about it. I always kind of make a note. It strikes a little bit of a nerve with me because I'm like, yeah. I mean, God has given us discernment and intuition. God does want us to make wise decisions. Sometimes it does require an internal uh, examination and, and to seek to use the wisdom that God's provided to make the right choice. But I need to remember 
that if I listen to my heart, that sometimes my heart is a liar. And that's hard to put into like a kid's cartoon. I recognize that. Like it doesn't really flow in the song. Listen to your heart. Sometimes it's a liar. Like that doesn't always like, doesn't help you see the ostrich, like learn how to fly. You know, like that isn't always something that's gonna work. But it's something that we need to keep in mind. That our hearts aren't always right. That our desires aren't always good. That the end result we think we're moving to isn't always the real destination of where our heart is going to lead us. That's why James says we have to be reliant upon the Lord over our own self. That, that, that self-reliance will often bring ruin, while, whereas our reliance on God brings grace. It brings blessing. That's, what he's about to, that's the point he's about to make in verse six. But to get there, right, right here, those first five verses, what James is telling us is that we need to, in order to be unified in, in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with the Lord, we need to reject envy. And if we reject envy, that's how we remove the hostility that shows up, the divisions that show up in our relationships. It is impossible for me to be envious of someone if I'm really excited for someone. If I'm truly excited for them, I'm not gonna be envious. But I can't really be excited for someone. I can't be, I can't remove that envy unless I recognize first, first and foremost that I lack nothing. And therefore, I think for us, practically speaking, in order to reject envy, in order to remove hostility, we need to grow in our contentment. We need to grow our contentment in God's provision. So we read in Psalm 23, it's the point that uh, James is making here. It's the point that Paul makes in Philippians chapter four. Paul's speaking to the church in Philippi, a church that he knew, the church that he loved, and he says that I'm not saying, he describes how they've been such a blessing to him in his times of need. And he says, I'm not saying these things because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in any circumstance. I've experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment, whether I go satisfied or hungry, whether I have plenty or whether I have nothing. So what is it? What is the secret? How has he learned to be content in all circumstances? I'm able to be content. I'm able to remain content in all these things through the one who strengthens me. Paul says that contentment comes through a reliance upon the Lord in his wisdom and his provision. It's a reliance on him, not a reliance on self. It's not that I grit my teeth and I decide like, I'm just gonna be tough and I'm gonna power through. Paul's saying that's not where contentment is found. And I think that's why you see in our world, our world is driven by discontentment. I mean, there's, and and part of it is, it's business. There is so much money to be made among the miserable. They want, our, our world at large is driven economically and socially by discontentment, by making you dissatisfied with your life and therefore you should spend more, do more, be more, apply to this, to get that degree, whatever it might be. James, Paul, the scripture of God, the word of God is telling us that contentment can be found not in this world, but in God alone. And so we grow in that contentment. We, we practice the discipline of contentment. The way we get there is we pray to the Lord. We ask him to change our hearts. We ask him to change our minds. We practice gratitude and thankfulness. That's how the Lord cultivates contentment in our heart. And as he cultivates that contentment, that's how we grow in our compassion for one another. I'm never gonna be compassionate for other people if I'm constantly feel like I'm competing against them. 
And so James is saying that in order to be unified, in order to show true compassion and care for one another, first we must be content. We have to calm the storm in our hearts by recognizing that God is enough. So we reject envy and we receive then the grace of God because God is rich in mercy, he's rich in blessing and that's why James starts verse six with the complete counter to that, that discontentment in five. He says, but God gives greater grace. Therefore it says, and here he quotes directly from Proverbs 3.34, he says, God opposes the proud to the humble. Therefore submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. James says that we have an opportunity to reject envy and not just flee from the bad, but we have an opportunity to chase after what is good. We can receive the greater grace of God. That self-reliance, that the proud, it brings the opposition of God, it brings destruction, it brings ruin. But the humble, the one who submits himself to the Lord, he's who will receive grace, who will be exalted. So submit to God. And Biblical submission to the Lord, it's more than just begrudging obedience. When we read these term, when we read the Greek term for submission, what it is, it's an acknowledgement, it's an acceptance that God's will is best, that his way is better. And so it's me deciding that I'm gonna submit myself to the Lord. Now, I'm not just obeying him for the sake of checking a box, but I am truly accepting the truth that his will, that his way is best. And if I'm submitting to him, he empowers me to resist temptation, to resist this devil, to draw near to him, verse seven. Or sorry, verse eight. And then if I'm drawing near to the Lord, he'll draw near to me. So cleanse your hands, you sinners. Make your hearts pure, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James gives 10 commands in like three verses. And they're all related to this one simple truth that we should be repenting of our sin and we should be receiving of God's grace. That's what we're called to, to live a life that is faithful and fruitful in the eyes of God. We repent of sin, we turn from sin and we, we receive God's grace. We receive God's grace. His grace is greater. He's not surprised by our inability to meet the mark. He's not shocked at our failure. God has seen it, God has prepared for it. God sent Jesus Christ to die for our failure. Therefore, we can receive the grace of God even when we make mistakes, even when we stumble, even when we fail. We can accept the greater grace of God. But that comes through an acknowledgement first of our own inability. We have to acknowledge and, and accept that we are broken. And we need to confess that to the Lord. That's part of repentance. Repentance is turning from one thing and running towards another. God says, I want you to acknowledge your brokenness. This is what happened when in ancient Israel, there was a time with Ezra and Nehemiah where Israel was in exile, and yet God made a way for some, of, some Israelites to go back to the promised land to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God at its center. And so when all these Israelites, you know, through all these wild events, they, they go back, they rebuild the walls, they start to rebuild the temple, they have a moment in the safety and security of the promised land that God was providing to them. They had a moment where they brought all the people together to hear a reading of the law. This is what we have recorded in Nehemiah 8. That Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priestly scribe and all the Levites who were imparting understanding to the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God, so do not mourn or weep. Well, why would they give that instruction? Well, 
we know that that instruction was needed, for all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the law. You see, as people were hearing the commands of God, they were seeing their own inability. They were seeing their brokenness. It was front and center. And so they were mourning and they were weeping. They were acknowledging their brokenness. They were acknowledging the sin in their lives. And yet, while that's an important part of the process, it's not the destination. God doesn't want to leave us in that. It's not that James is telling us that we should just be perpetually sad and downers and bummers. But James is saying we do need to weep and repent. We need to mourn for the failure and the brokenness, the battles in our hearts. We need to mourn that. We need to acknowledge our failure. And yet, God has given us a greater grace. And we, even the people in the time of Nehemiah saw this. So Nehemiah and Ezra, these leaders that were in front of him, they said to the people, they said, go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You can take hope and joy and comfort in that God's grace is sufficient, that his grace is greater than your personal failure. So for all of us, this is our charge, this is our goal, that we would grow in our understanding of God's grace just like the, people, the Israelites of old, just like the audience that James was writing to. We need to, yes, acknowledge our failure, but then appreciate, acknowledge, accept the grace of God. And when we do that, that shared grace, what it does is it brings a shared joy and it unifies us. This is what brings us together as followers of Christ. This is what brings us together as the body of Christ is when we all acknowledge that we're in this together, that we are all recipients of God's incredible, amazing grace. And that shared grace brings a shared joy that unites us in the eyes of the Lord and unites us in the eyes of the world around us. My wife and I, we saw this play out in our family this last week where we were sitting around the table for dinner. And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I think our four-year-old asked something along the lines of, are we something like, are we gonna live here forever? Like, are we gonna live in this house, like, forever? Like, he's just, you know, he's always thinking ahead. I think he'd been looking at his 401k earlier that day. He's like, you know, I gotta, how, long, how many more mortgage payments do we got? You know, he's just trying to do the math. And so I told him, you know, like, I didn't think too intently about this question, but I, t- I told him, matter of fact, I was like, well, like, mommy and I, we might live here forever, Um, but like one day you are all, like you three children, you're gonna grow up and you're actually gonna go live on your own. Simple statement. You would have thought that I dropped a live grenade in the middle of our table because of the terror and (laughs) weeping that immediately took place amongst at least our boys. Like our, you know, so our four-year-old, our six-year-old, our boys, they were like, what? And like immediately, like immediately our four-year-old, he started to tear up. He's like, what? Oh, I could grow up and I don't want to live by my own. And he's just like immediately, we, like our eight-year-old, our daughter, she like, she's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like she's, she's like kind of ready. And our four-year-old, we were, and so I'm trying to explain, I'm like, well, yeah, like you're going to grow up. Like that's time. Like I don't control that. Like you're, and that's our job. Like mommy and I, we, part of our job is we want to take care of you and we want to prepare you to go and live on your, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to grow up and to go and live on your own and you can start your own family. And it's, it's going to be a wonderful thing that you're going to, you're going to really, I promise you'll be ready. Like give your four, give it like nine years. You'll be ready like to leave our house. I promise. But just, just the sorrow 
that he started caring. And our six-year-old literally just put, he just put his head in his hands and like didn't talk to us for like five minutes as he's just contemplating the reality of the passage of time. And our four-year-old, he's like so upset. He's like starting to kind of come around. I'm like, you know, it's gonna be okay. This is, this is how it should be. But he's just like still a little rock. So he gets out of his chair. He walks around our table, comes up next to me on the bench. And he sticks his head right next to me. He goes, I need, I need to tell you something. I was like, okay, what? Because I didn't tell you. When I grow up, I will miss you. And just like starts like weeping, weeping in my face. I was like, I mean, good, I guess. You know, like, that's kind of the goal. Like, I don't want you to hate me. Um, but man, it was just one of those moments where my wife and I were just looking at each other like, what, have we, like, what are we doing? Like, how, what have we done? And so thankfully, like, I don't know why we, we should have led with this, but I told him, after he's like weeping, like in my face, I was like, hey, well, you know, like when you grow up, you can always come back and see us. Like you can see us and come visit anytime you want. You can stay as long as you want, anytime. And he was like, oh, 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 okay. And he was fine. <laughs> he was fine. He's like, I'll stay for four days. And I was like, that's a great amount of time. Yeah, come stay with us four days. Anytime. He's like, oh, okay. And he's, he's great. He's solid. Um, ready to grow up now. But it was one of those things that as soon as we just gave him that assurance, we were like, look, y'all can come and you can call us. You can come see us. That's great. We'd love to still see you, even if you don't live with us. That just the rejoicing, like the, the joy that just suddenly captivated our table was just indescribable. Where they suddenly realize that, wow, there is hope. We can, our parents aren't just going to send us into the wilderness with a knife and a rabbit. Like, we're going to be okay. We can see them again. And God has told us that this is what he's, this is what all of us have been shown. This is what all of us have received. We have received this promise, this hope, this blessing of grace from God. This is the beauty of our gospel. That all of us were broken and failures, that none of us could make ourselves right with God because of the sin that reigned supreme in our hearts and in our minds. And yet Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And then he died the death that every single one of us deserved because of our sin. And yet then he rose again on the third day to prove his power and authority over the sin and death that held us captive. And when he rose, he told us, he proclaimed, he promised. He says, if you call on my name, he doesn't say you need to clean up your act. He doesn't say you need to do these things, perform these sacrifices, do these rituals. He says, all you need to do, you just need to call on my name. You believe and trust in me in the work that I've accomplished on your behalf and you can have forgiveness of sins. You can be accredited righteousness. You can have eternal life with the God who made you and loves you and is calling you to himself. You can have all of that fulfillment, all that satisfaction for all of eternity simply by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the beauty. That's the shared joy of our gospel. That's what unifies us. And so, of course, as people of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be rallying around, reminding one another, remembering for ourselves the grace that God has shown us. And as we do that, unity springs forth. Unity is cultivated. As we share in the grace of God, it brings a shared joy that unites us at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what God has given to us, this opportunity to be united in our understanding of his grace. This is why we talk so much at Southwood about small groups, about community groups, about Bible studies, because we know that we need one another. We need a communal environment 
to encourage and exhort, to challenge and equip one another to remember the grace of God. It's why we talk about it over and over again. At the end of the service, I'm gonna come up after the last song, I'm gonna talk to you about Cultivate because it's the best step towards community here at Southwood. And the goal of community is not to fill our ranks, it's not to check boxes. The goal of community is that we would encourage one another, that we would challenge one another as we grow together in our understanding of the grace of God. This is one of the reasons why Trey Jordan, our worship pastor, he and I are partnering at the end of this, the last Thursday in March through all the Thursdays of April. We're gonna have a five-week class where we are looking at the entire story of Scripture. It's gonna be Thursday evening, seven o'clock. If you wanna register for it, here's the code. But five weeks, Thursday nights, we're gonna walk from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And the goal of walking through all of Scripture in its entirety is that we would be able to see this incredible thread that God has woven through all of Scripture, through all of, of the history that we have with him, all the recorded history we have with the Lord. Spoiler alert, it's a thread of grace. And so we want to spend time looking and understanding, growing in our understanding and appreciation for the grace that God has given us because that, that's what we rally around. That's what unites us. That's what humbles us to remember that all of us are broken by sin. None of us deserve the sacrifice of Christ, and yet, God offers it. He offers eternal salvation to all, to any who believe. That's the story of scripture. That's what we're gonna see. That's what James is reinforcing. So very quickly, James lands the plane, not even just in receiving the grace of God, but this passage, I think, fits really well where he concludes in verse 11 and 12, talking about then how do we judge or, or not judge one another. He says this in verse 11. He says, do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters, for he who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. He says, if you are making yourself judge, jury, executioner, he says, you've overstepped your bounds. If you're criticizing, now, we can call people to the best, to God's best. In fact, James is gonna talk a lot about that in the end of the, at the end of the letter, about accountability, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, challenging one another to, to live according to the will of God. He's not saying we don't have accountability, but what he's saying is that we can speak that truth with grace, and that if we are calling someone to God's best, that calling of, to the best does not need to be paired with a criticism of the individual. That's what he's denouncing. He says, you, you have no room to belittle and demolish other people, other believers, if, you, if they're not living up to your expectations. He says, that's not your place. It's the same thing that J Jesus told his followers, right? He says, before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye, look out for that log you've got lodged in your own. Again, it's not that we don't call sin out. We do that. But we do it in the right way, at the right time, with the right person. James is saying the same thing. Yes, we have accountability, but we don't need to make attacks. We can call them to God's best, but we don't criticize. Because if, if you do that, he says what you're doing is you're, you're putting yourself above the law. You're saying that I don't actually need to follow the law. I don't need to love my neighbor as myself because my neighbor is behaving poorly. And James says that's not, that you can't do that. You don't put yourself above the law. You're not Batman, right? We all wanna be, I'm Batman. Like we, there's a part of us that wants to be Batman. James is saying that's not your place. It's above your pay grade. For if you judge the law, 
you're not a doer of the law, but it's judge. So there is only one who is lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. And on the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? Therefore, practically for us, we reserve our judgment, we rely on God's work, we rely on God's timing to be someone's Holy Spirit. We can't, I can't be someone's Holy Spirit. I gotta accept that. I can pray for them, I can encourage them, and I can speak truth. It doesn't mean I don't have hard conversations. It doesn't mean my mouth is shut, but it means my mouth is full of mercy. That I speak the truth with grace because I trust that God has a plan. Same thing that Paul, the same point that Paul makes in Romans 12, that as far as it depends on you, you should be living peaceably with all people. You don't avenge yourselves, dear friends, but you give place to God's wrath, for it's written that vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So for us, personally, we grow, instead of focusing on the faults and the needs of the people around us, on, on their insufficiencies, what we do is we confess our failure to the Lord and we allow him to increase our compassion for others. Again, God can use us to bring conviction in the lives of others, but boy howdy, we need to be slow to that speech. And we need to be honest before the Lord, asking him to bring our own personal conviction before we're worried about the conviction of someone else. Focus on the person that you can actually control. <laughs> you can't control your neighbor, can't control your roommate, can't control your spouse. But God has given us a spirit of self-control and wisdom that we can lean upon, that we can rely on, and it's the same spirit that he gives to every believer. So we can trust his timing is good. Right? And this is one of the things that I think, I love that James makes this point um, because this is how we should biblically prepare for communion. Right? When you walked in this morning, uh, you maybe received one of these little cups. If you didn't, uh, that's okay. We have extras. Our deacon, I just saw them running past the window. They're getting baskets of more that they can walk on the room. If you just put your hand up, uh, they'll make sure you get one. But in Scripture, when we're taught uh, about the practice of communion, what we're told is that it's a time of reflection and remembrance. That communion is not the Lord's Supper. It's not a means by which we earn the favor of God or that we earn salvation. Uh, this is simply an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus Christ to reflect and to remember the incredible work of Christ. The, the, our, we can express our gratitude for Christ's sacrifice. We also express our hope in Christ's return. But it starts, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, it starts with confessing our sin, coming before the Lord with honesty, asking him to examine our hearts and our minds, that we would be forthcoming to the Lord, that we would be honest and admitting our fault and our failure, recognizing that we didn't deserve Christ's sacrifice. None of us did. But instead, in humility, we come before the Lord. We offer our thanks for what he's done. We offer our praise for what he will do. And it's something that we don't just practice in isolation, but communion is always something meant for community. So we don't just remember what Christ has done, but we remind one another as well. That's why we do this when we gather together, because we are encouraging and reminding one another that God has performed a mighty work. And it's a work that should humble us when we approach our God, and it's a work that should humble us as we approach one another.